Well, if you've been here, you'll know that for the last uh, three months or so we've lived in the company of (coughs) Theophilus on Sunday mornings. He is the man to whom Jesus, uh, Luke, sorry, has written this biography of Jesus, this gospel. Almost certainly he was a Gentile, not a Jew, and so he didn't know his Old Testament um, and he didn't automatically think he was uh, belonged to God's people. But Luke has assured him that actually the God of the Bible can be his God. He was a highly respected uh, Roman citizen. He's addressed as most excellent Theophilus by uh, Luke. Almost certainly, therefore, he's rich as well. The phenomenon of um, penniless gents is a relatively modern British one, not uh, one found in Rome. So I want you to imagine um, this morning that um, wealthy, respectable Theophilus settles down in his opulent villa one evening with uh, this gospel from Luke in his hand again. Perhaps it's a cold winter's night. Perhaps he wraps his toga tightly round his shoulders. He puts his feet on the uh, warm bit of the floor where the hypercourse runs underneath. Draws uh, the oil lamp closer to him and takes up that gospel. Turning to the last page. And there is one thing in his mind. He has slowly and carefully worked through this whole story of Jesus. He prays before he reads this last little section and as he prays, he remembers right at the beginning young Mary, the mother of Jesus, how she rejoiced that God had lifted up the humble and put down those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He remembers how it was those humble shepherds then who first heard the message of the birth of Jesus. He remembers how Jesus declared that the Spirit of God was upon him to preach good news to the poor and as he prays he smiles to himself. Because everything around him is designed to foster his pride. His, he lives in a great villa. He has a legion of servants. His friends address him as most excellent. Even the clothes he wears and the ring on his finger proclaim his greatness. And yet, he thinks God has done a miracle in his heart. God has humbled him. And now he's overwhelmed with delight at the privilege of being numbered alongside Mary giving birth in a stable, alongside shepherds sleeping under the stars, with the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame, whom in Jesus' story, uh, parable of the banquet, were the people who the master invited to eat with him. His mind perhaps lingers in prayer over that foolish prodigal son who went off wealthy, squandered all his wealth and when he was poor he came tramping back to his father thinking all the best he could hope for was to be a hired hand. But actually to his utter surprise his father ran to him, his father hugged him, his father kissed him, his father clothed him, his father fed him, his father celebrated with him. 
How amazing. And Theophilus thinks to himself, I don't care about this villa. I don't care about my noble title. My, never, my money is never going to buy, buy me anything approaching what I have found in this book. I have found a God who loves me like the dearest father. I've found a God who forgives me. I've found a God who rejoices over me as I come and kneel before him. I see, he says to himself, what Jesus meant when he said, what use is it if a man gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? I know I must now lose my life to gain it. I know I must take up my cross daily and follow Christ. And I can't think of anything I would rather do. In prayer, perhaps, Theophilus lingers over Christ's death. That extraordinary promise that he made before he died to that dying thief on a cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. He remembers that, that deeply moving and dignified death of Jesus. But then, more than that, he remembers Christ's resurrection to solid, physical, walking with his friends, fish-eating, amazing, joyful, eternal life. And he thinks to himself, that'll be me. Me, proud, lost Theophilus who grew up a million miles from real faith in God. I'm now promised resurrection life as I bow before this Christ. Why he almost wishes that he could be that thief on the cross who was promised paradise today. What more could anyone want? A tear rolls down his cheek. He opens his eyes, takes up that gospel and there is one thing on his mind now. One thing only that he is thinking about as he turns to that last page, those last few lines. One thing only. What now? What should he do with his life now that this book has turned it around and changed it? That's what's in his mind as he reads this last, the end of this last resurrection appearance of Jesus. Jesus told them, verse 46, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer, rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high says Jesus. And Theophilus here learns in, in germinal form something that actually Luke is going to explain in much grander perspective in his second um, long treatise that he writes to Theophilus, the book we now call Acts, which records the life of the early church. But here, just in a little, in a little germ, Theophilus begins to see the answer to 
what now? And I hope, frankly, that is the question in our minds as well as we have studied Luke's Gospel. How should we respond? What now? How should we live? The first thing that uh, um, Theophilus needs to uh, learn is our role. In verse 48, you are witnesses of these things, says Jesus. Of course, those words in the first instance are, uh, are addressed directly to the disciples who had lived with Jesus, who had met the risen Jesus, Luke um, nearly always used the, uses the word witness to describe someone who has actually physically seen the risen Jesus. But the rest of the New Testament expands that concept to make it plain that, wit- that Christians in general are witnesses of these things. As in verses 45 and 46, we too as Christians, have had our minds open so that we can understand the Scriptures. We too have understood uh, why the Christ had to suffer. We have been persuaded that Jesus rose from the dead. More than that, uh, the Holy Spirit has done something in our hearts so that we find ourselves now also having a subjective experience that we can bear witness to, that our hearts were turned from hating God to loving him, and that our hearts were turned from having no interest in God to treasuring him as the most precious thing in our lives. And our role is to be witnesses of these things. It's our fundamental, primary role on this earth. And let me make that very plain. We have spoken, for instance, a number of times over the last few weeks about the practical implications of the Gospel, about loving the the marginalised and the outcasts and the poor particularly, because that is an emphasis of Luke. And I am persuaded that that's a particular calling of us as a church in uh, this world at this moment. We need to take that really seriously. But why do we do it? We do it because we want to imitate God's love, we want to live like him, but more than that, we want to display God's love, display God's glory, display God's character. We want a watching world to look at us and begin to ask questions, not actually so much about us, but about God. greatest act of love we can do for anyone, you see, is not just to care for their physical needs, though that may be the first, in the first instance what we need to do. It's to show, show them the God who cares for them eternally. The God who longs to forgive them. The God who longs to give them resurrection life eternally in his presence. Yesterday a man came up to me um, at the uh, live manger where there were lots and lots of uh, people and we've already said thank you. Let me say thank you again to, to all the people in the church who helped. We had so many visitors 
and um, this was one of them. He came up to me and he told me how impressed he had been by the working life of a church member. And uh, he said to me, um, I'll let you know the gender but nothing more of this person, he's doing such a great job, they said. Everyone respects him and yet he is so humble. And I thought to myself, I bet it's not only the donkey that attracted this man to come and see what was happening at Magdalen Road. And I thought as well, I bet he listens all the more attentively when I say we in this church really do believe the story of Jesus. And that's changed our lives. We are witnesses of these things. Again and again we find ourselves in the church as well talking about the quality of our life as a local church here. We are called to love one another patiently, fervently, compassionately, enduringly. We are called to love across boundaries so that actually we are to love people who we wouldn't naturally like. Why? Well, again, partly because that is just simply what it means to imitate God. God who so loved the world in rebellion against him. But we also do it for another reason as well. Because actually the quality of life internally amongst us displays to the world the glory and love of God. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, said Jesus. That you love one another. And again, the live manger yesterday was, was packed with uh, people and a lot, an awful lot of people who come to Sunflowers, our uh, mother and toddler uh, group. Let me tell you one story. A person that we have known for years in the, uh, 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 in, the, in the area has always been friendly but she's always shied away from any religious sorts of conversations and more recently she started coming to Sunflowers and she said to us not so long ago she said there is something about your church not the building, the people and then amazingly last week she said I think I want to come to your nativity service see I, I I'm absolutely convinced that 21st century British people are completely unimpressed with fine words, which is a great relief to me because I'm not very good at fine words. But they will travel miles to find love. They are bowled over by authentic compassion. 
when they see those things, they will listen and some will find Christ. Our role to be witnesses. The second answer to Theophilus is not uh, what now question found in verse 47. We are witnesses, yes, we are witnesses of a particular message. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. It is a message in Jesus' name. It's not, not, not our message, it's Jesus' message. It is a message for all nations, i.e. for everyone. And it is a message, most particularly, of repentance and forgiveness of sins. What is repentance? We need to understand that. First of all, we must be, be, be clear what it is not. Repentance is not atonement. That is, repentance is not some way whereby Christians pay for their sins. In the Da Vinci Code, if you watch the film or read the book, there's this murderous albino monk and uh, he wears, I can't remember what it's called now, someone probably will know, a nasty instrument of torture around his leg, which um, every time he's done something particularly nasty, like bumping someone off, he uh, tightens to increase the pain. as if somehow that atoned for the sin of murder. What absolute rubbish. There is no atonement that we can do for our sins. A sin in a Christian life is like a broken link in a chain which we were hanging on to the wrong end of. Once you're falling, you can't go and mend the link. Now, repentance does not, cannot pay for our sin. A single sin severs our relationship with God in a way that we can not reverse. but we can turn to God. And that's what it's about. It's about turning around. It's about crying out to God, to Christ, who has paid for our sin. Repentance is about finding a relationship with God where once we turned our back on him, now we turn to face him. It's about coming home to a father like that prodigal son from beginning to end in his uh, gospel. Luke has been very, very clear. Repentance will change our life. A new lifestyle is expected. It is Luke who records John the Baptist saying to the Pharisees and even the soldiers as they, uh, as they came to observe him baptising people, produce 
fruit in keeping with repentance. It is Luke who carefully records the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who demonstrates his change of lifestyle by repaying people whom he's swindled. No, Luke has been absolutely clear. Our life will change. Actually, sins must be turned away from. But the point is, we turn to God. And we plead for his mercy. And he offers it. Though we can't pay in any way. Like that father going out to his son as he appeared over the horizon in Luke 15. God comes to us as we turn to him. And uh, we need to understand as well that though repentance is a, is, a, uh, is a definite first decision to follow God, it is something that then has to characterise our life because uh, sadly we are like children learning to ride our far- first bike. We wobble, We can't hold a straight line and occasionally we disastrously crash. But you see, once we have turned to God the Father, he picks us up. He warns us of dangers. He unobtrusively holds the back of the saddle so that we don't fall off. He smiles with delight as we learn to have more and more confidence as we ride along the road. But never do we cease to need to come back to him again and again and again. This is our message. Message of repentance. And there is a promise that goes with that. It is very simple. To the penitent, there is forgiveness of sins. Not just just some of our sins, all of them. Not just the sins committed in the past. God knows the past, the present and the future. And as we turn to him, he chooses to forgive all of them, to take none of them into account. Not just the minor sins, so that the most heinous sins somehow go unforgiven and uh, hanging over us like the... um, um, the Catholic doctrine of, of, of um, um, major and minor sins, all of our sins. Because Christ died, because the Son of God died for our sins, because God himself in Christ paid for all of our sins with his life. Have you committed a sin in your life that required a greater punishment than the death of the Son of God? I don't think so. So the death of the Son of God is enough. That is our message. 
so that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, says the Apostle. Or later, that there is neither, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither depth nor height, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the promise because God has forgiven all of our sins as we came to him and so there is nothing that needs separate us from God eternally. That is our message. What a message. What a hope to offer our world. One further thing that Theophilus needs to see as he sits in his villa. Our power. Amazingly, Jesus says in verse uh, 49 that they should stay put. Stay in the city, he says. These disciples who are bubbling with joy, bubbling with excitement, overwhelmed with the message, who have seen that the whole message of the Bible fits together and finds its, its, its focus uh, in the death and resurrection of, of, of Jesus, who have, who have discovered a message that the world has been longing for for millennia and that will change the world forever afterwards, who they are told, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Hold back. Stay exactly where you are until you have been clothed with power from on high. Of course, Jesus is talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Peter said uh, earlier. That gift will be given to these disciples just a little while later at Pentecost. It's recorded in, uh, in the book of Acts. And uh, since that moment, that, that gift, in essence, is actually given to every believer when they become a Christian. So, at one level, the command to stay, to hold back, no longer applies to either us or, or, or Theophilus. But at another level, Luke is pointing us to something very, very important. We must be clear that the only witness that will cut it, the only witness that will really make a difference in this world is witness which is empowered by God's Spirit. Now, I know numbers of us here have been stirred up by Luke's Gospel this, uh, uh, this autumn and uh, I'm delighted about that. People have been saying, what should we do? What, what initiatives should we take as a church? Um, where should we go from here? I'm not particularly inclined myself to, to hold us back because there is lots to do. Great things that we could get involved in. But actually, I know that sometimes God's people get all excited in a moment and they rush ahead and they trip over and fall over and actually become demoralised and cynical for years, even decades, sometimes the rest of their life afterwards. And the reason is really simple why. I have not really asked God's Spirit to go ahead of them. They have not really asked God himself 
what he would have them do. There is a world out there that needs to hold the gospel, uh, to, to hear the gospel. But let's be absolutely clear. Jesus says, don't take a single step unless the Spirit of God is with you. I'm really excited actually about what's happening amongst us at that level. Um, a group who've started praying at the church on Thursday mornings, for instance. Exciting times. It's great that they're, 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 they're doing that. I am sure God is delighted and Satan is hating it. Seems to me there is a, there is a, um, a new spirit in many, many people of compassion and concern amongst people and uh, 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 it seems to me the Holy Spirit really is at work amongst us. I am delighted, I am excited. But we must be cautious. Let God do his work in his way. Let's not go behind, lagging behind and dragging our feet. But let's not rush ahead either. Stay in Jerusalem, says Jesus until you're clothed with power. Let's make prayer the first and foremost thing that leads us forward, where we are before God pleading with him, where he is speaking to us and empowering us. So Theophilus finally closes this life-changing book he's read. He puts the book on the table by his side. He rises from his chair and he knows life is never going to be the same again. Now he's got a new role in life. He is a witness of Jesus Christ. Now he's got a new message to give to the world, to all nations. A message of repentance. A message of complete forgiveness of sins. And now he's got a new power in his life. The Holy Spirit who has drawn his heart to the living God, who has excited his heart about who God is and who will empower him and guide him and encourage him and at times rebuke him along the way. But who will make his life useful. And most excellent for Theophilus, claps his hands and as always his chief slave comes rushing in and to the slave's astonishment he says I've just become a disciple of Jesus Christ 
And Jesus Christ proclaimed release for the oppressed. Would you like your freedom? There's a crash. The slave drops what he was uh, carrying. But Theophilus ignores that completely. And he says, and I wonder, would you permit me to do something? Slave's eyes nearly pop out of his head. Theophilus, he's never asked a slave's permission for anything in his life before. Manages to pick his jaw off the floor and uh, close his mouth enough to say, well, yes. Theophilus continues, would you permit me to tell you a little bit more about this Jesus? Jesus. 